Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. we got a real cool guest sitting on the other side of our Zoom. A man is sitting on the couch. And this is going to be kind of like a, a follow-up to our, our last episode where where, where, <laughs> where Amanda and I probably spoke out of school on a lot of things. And, uh, and uh, I want to go back to school. So this is going to be good. I like how you brought up school twice. Yes, we oh, are like referring to the episode that was published recently with Anne, who had an unfortunate experience working in a college where due to politics and her job title, she felt she wasn't able to deliver the education that she wanted to or the quality that she wanted to with the students in clinic. And uh, somebody listened to that episode and sent us an email, very thoughtful email about some things we may not have known about how community colleges work and what the processes are. And um, I, I thanked him for that and then said, hey, why don't you come and teach us? Because clearly Mark and I could use a little more education on this topic. Yeah, I don't know anything about, I, I don't know anything about working for anybody else. I, I, you know, I worked at a private career college for a good little while and that's the only bit of anything that I had for working for somebody as an employee. And even in that role, I was given so much freedom to do whatever the hell I wanted to yeah. do. So I, I don't even know what it's like to have a boss, no, basically. Mark doesn't have any idea what it's like to work for somebody else. So enter Marvin. Uh, thank you for hanging out with us after your long day at work. And I really like your Zoom. I assume that's your Zoom background or like, do you oh, actually? Yes. Okay. I was going to say, do you like just live in this really cool place with a, a big library behind you? I feel like you only see that's that in movies. That's from the George Eastman <laughs> Museum. Oh, oh, I see that now in the corner. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Well, you know what I, I do want dumb. though? You know, when you, have you ever been to like a Fido store lately? No. All the Fido stores, at least the ones in the greater Toronto area, they have wallpaper that are like are like uh, shelves of albums. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, I would really love this for my for where? house. For your house? Yes, I our house. I live in that house. Yes. <laughs> and I think it'd be a fabulous idea to have this wall that just looks like a bunch of shel- shelves full of albums. We can find a place Gift giving season is coming up. There you go. <laughs> Gift giving season is uh, coming up. You know what? Actually, you know how a lot of people say their spouses or significant others, they say, oh, they're so oh, hard wife. to buy for. So okay. hard to buy for. I You're never have this it. problem because Mark wants everything. Like he loves gadgets, he loves toys, he loves he loves anything. This is the biggest <laughs> problem that we have is anything I want, I just go get he it. He just fucking so, buys it. <laughs> so then by time by time gift giving season rolls around, it's like any idea that you might have had, yeah, guess what? Purchased it last month. But I always figure it out because you actually do really like a lot of stuff. <laughs> so you had a long day at work. Before you tell us all about you and the long day of work, what did you have for lunch? Uh, some uh, leftover chicken and uh, some uh, hmm, spring rolls. That sounds delicious. That does sound Coming delicious. from a guy who never eats lunch, like that sounds lovely. You did have lunch today. I brought you a well, chicken wrap. It really didn't count. That was more like breakfast because I didn't have That's the first true. meal. You didn't so have that breakfast. was the first meal. <laughs> you get the idea. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. So, as I mentioned, we have Marvin on the other side of our Zoom, who is a registered massage therapist. He's also an educator and works at a college, and as we mentioned, has a much better understanding than we do on how these things work. So, Marvin, for everybody listening, can you introduce yourself? How long you've been practicing? How long you've been teaching? sort of what your your journey through this profession has been like? Uh, well, I, I um, became registered as a massage therapist in 1994. Cool. Yes. And I um, started teaching at Algonquin College in 1999. Oh, wow. Okay. Only five years into your career, you started teaching. I think a lot of people do that. What was the motivation for you to want to teach? Uh, well, it was more of a, uh, a life uh, change because uh, I met my to be wife. And I moved from Thunder Bay to Ottawa. And in order to, uh, at the time, in order to have a sort of a lifestyle and have a little bit of income, I decided to start teaching. So I moved for a job. Okay. I tried to maintain practice here, practice in Ottawa, but it was um, hit and miss for a few years because then we uh, started having kids and well, life has never been the same since. Absolutely. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we understand that. <laughs> yeah, so I've been teaching that whole time uh, at Algonquin, and um, I want to say that most of the stuff that you guys spoke about was bang on, right? So you did a great job of covering that um, that story with Anne. Oh, okay. So we're not as as dopey as we thought we were. <laughs> no, not at all. Was it hard? building a practice in Ottawa? Well, that's what I never got around to because I was teaching full time and then I was trying to build a practice. So I was working on weekends and 
again, this was in the early 2000s yeah. where it was like, for me, it wasn't working because I didn't have that uh, time in my life. So when you say full-time teaching, are we talking like eight hours a day type of thing teaching? No, no, no. Um, so here's one of those things about the community college. Yeah. Uh, so the community college, we have uh, what's called a collective agreement. And it's a contract. Um, and it's not just about massage. It's about every, think about every allied health or every um, business course that a college would offer. So whether it be languages or business or whatever, that same collective agreement applies to all faculty. Right. Um, and so in a, we have a workload. So we have a maximum number of hours a week that we can teach. So it ends up being 18 hours of teaching. Gotcha. And then the balance of that contract is associated with how much assessment time we have, like how much evaluation time, how much preparation time. Because, Mark, you're an educator. You know how much time you put into making something right. Yeah. And and you probably never got paid for it when, when you were teaching in a private vocational school. That is absolutely no. correct. Yeah. So, yeah, this is what um, – it's a, an agreement – and it's a long-standing thing since the early 80s. So it's not unique to massage, but it is to the colleges, to community colleges, because they really do professionalized teaching. So a couple things, because I did work at a private career college for a long time. When you're hired to work at a pri- private career college, th- there there aren't a huge number of, of obstacles to get over. So for example, you can be hired uh, at a private career college, and I'm, I don't know if a community college works the same way. The ministry standard is you need at least four years of working in the field if you do not have a university degree. Or if you have a university degree, that can now be two years working in the field. So I started teaching you know, you were, two, you years, two years, two years yeah. after being an RMT because I have my, my kin degree. And right. you know that, that met the ministry standards. What, what are the qualifications for working at least at the, the school that you're at? And do they require more than just your designation as a massage therapist? Do they require, you know, adult teacher training courses or certificates or anything else along those lines? How does that work? Uh, So they do require the minimum, the minimum number of uh, years of experience. Um, And they don't necessarily, and I say necessarily require um, a degree of any kind, but um, it is what the market dictates. Mm -hmm. Meaning when you have several highly qualified people, your uh, criteria will elevate. Um, so that's not uncommon. Um, and if, uh, so Algonquin college, uh, offers a lot of um, professional development in respect to teaching adult learners. And because much of the community college system throughout Ontario has a lot of part-time teachers. So they try to support them with those kinds of resources, teaching resources. Right. So as a full-time faculty, I do have, um, some additional, um, access to those pieces, meaning I have a little bit more time to actually spend on them. Um, but they're offered complimentary as, as part of the employment. Is it required that even the part-time instructors, is it required that they take uh, take advantage of these resources or are they just there if you choose to use them? Um, well, I can speak at our college. They um, have a, an orientation session where it's built in. So oh, some okay. of the teaching resources like we use a learning management system and right. it's called Brightspace and they teach part-time teachers how to use them uh, because it, it takes a little familiarity mm-hmm. and, and this was even pre COVID. So um, yeah, they offer a lot and then they have those courses where the, the teachers can take them, uh, you know, at their own pace at their own time and fit it into their schedule. So there's, there's continuity with uh with the teachers and that's yeah that's good that's important um i'm i'm trying to figure out the differences i guess between community college and career college and neither of you have worked at both but one of the things you know mark started to say is there's not a lot of obstacles one thing i noticed working at a private career college was if you had the rmt designation and you got a job as an instructor they would kind of throw you in to teach every class, like any any massage class you could teach, yeah. even if you ver- even if you said to them, you know, I don't this feel not, so comfortable teaching, teaching remedial this. exercise, or I don't feel comfortable teaching the kinesiology section. And I remember myself as a student having instructors who flat out said to us, like, kinesiology is not my strong suit, but 
I'm the instructor for this class. Yeah. And I felt like that's a little strange. <laughs> is is there a, a difference in working in a community college where maybe they choose instructors based on the subject matter and pick people that are stronger in those areas? Or is it kind of the same where you can teach any class and it's up to you to make sure you familiarize yourself with the material? Like as a full-time faculty member, they propose what I'm going to teach. And I have um, a little, not, I, I want to call it a rebuttal, but it's really just, um, so for example, one time they asked me to teach pathophysiology mm-hmm. and we had people who had taught pathophysiology that were excellent and had been teaching it for well over a decade. And I said, hold on, I'm not the best candidate for that <laughs> because not only, it's not just about the knowledge of the content. I said, I understand pathophysiology and how sure. it applies in the massage practice, but you want me to teach it? Um, so you rely on people that have more knowledge. So faculty who are not massage therapists teach it. We have some also massage therapists who do have that sort of background knowledge, um, keen interest, and they do teach it and they teach it really well. We've had um, nurses. Uh, we've had um, other healthcare professionals teach our courses, pharmacists. Mm-hmm. So in the community college, you have that a little bit of uh, interdepartmental mm-hmm. capacity, which is nice. I think that is beneficial at, at a community beneficial. college to yeah, have just a bigger pond to choose from. As I said, when working at the, at the career college, there was usually like one or two RMTs, depending on how big the program was. But, you know, yeah. I was at a school where it was a smaller program. So there was one or two RMTs that That's would hard. teach all, all, all of, of the, the practical, practical classes. classes. And then we had people with like masters in clinical anatomy and those types of instructors for like our regional anatomy and our um, uh, physiology, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and that was great to have them. But the RMTs that were there, because there was sometimes only one, if it was a smaller in take or two, then they were having to teach every single subject, even if they weren't 100% comfortable with it. And uh, like I said, it turned out to be a little bit awkward. I remember actually, as I, I used kinesiology as the example, because one of my instructors turned to me and said, well, you have a degree in kinesiology, right? Like, maybe you should be helping me with this. I'm like, well, this is awkward. Although maybe I could have been helping with that. It's strange though. <laughs> do you like, hmm. It, is this the right thing to do? So, for example, when you go to the the education coordinator at a private career college, and you and you express like I am not comfortable teaching this, like this is not something I I can't I won't do this justice. I'm going to do a bad job. You know, is it right for them to say bah, buck up and just go do it? I don't think any, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't think any human who has a job that's paying them and possibly offering benefits is going to say I'm going to do a bad job. I've heard this. I've heard this. <laughs> They've really come out and said I can't this. do it. I've okay. heard this when I was working at the private career college, and I was kind of really informally running the program because they didn't want to pay me properly to run the to give me the title of running the program. And when we were placing people to teach classes, I've had people come up to me and say like, "This is not my strong suit. Like, I can." not teach this class and then i said well you got to go talk to like the education director about this like i'm not i'm not the one that's hiring you like you're i got nothing to do with this and then they would go talk to that particular person that person's like you know just go do something is that the right thing to do i i mean i'm gonna let marvin weigh in we all know the answer but (laughs) i to me there's two types of people like how i just said i can't imagine someone with a paying job would do that because me as a person would be like I can figure this out. I listened to Christine Sutherland talk to a whole group of therapists about um, when she first started out teaching, how she would learn the material on a Tuesday and teach it on a Friday to a whole group of healthcare professionals. So I feel like I would be that person. I'd be the Christine. I'd learn it and I'd teach it. A bigger question then for both of you guys. Is that acceptable? Do you guys think that's acceptable? Someone is, let's, let's assume that they have the capability of doing so, that they can go learn the material the night before and then do and then deliver it. Is that acceptable to you? Or would you rather, or, or do you know what I mean? To me, that just kind of feels icky. It doesn't feel exactly right. But at the end of the day, if the information gets transferred to the learner and the learner receives the information, the information is proper and the learner learns what they need to learn, then who the hell cares? So I think you just answered your own question, but let me Damn just it. say before, because I do want to hear what Marvin has to say about this being that he's never worked in the, the career college setting, or maybe he has, I didn't actually get that far. But uh, the other type of person, I'm I'm going to throw somebody under the bus right now. Jesus our me. our oldest child's teacher right now 
is the other type of person. My God. Let me tell you guys a story, okay? It'll be a quick story time. We went to curriculum night Horrible. last week and the they just had to do a reorganization. This happens a lot in school boards. I was not surprised about it. So our oldest Horrible. daughter got transferred to a different class. Horrible. I was slightly disappointed because she went from being the younger of the two grades in a split grade to the older of the two grades. I always liked her being with the older kids because she's, she's a very ambitious little girl. And then she would start doing like the grade five work because it was exciting for her. So now she's, you know, in a three, four and she's grade four. No big deal. So we go to this curriculum night and the teacher starts off by saying, I've never taught grade four before. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I haven't come up with a schedule. I have no plan. I have nothing to show you. And to every question that was asked, the answer we got was, I don't know. And I left the room and I said to Mark, even if she felt that way, because I, I believe she really does feel this way. And maybe people are going to disagree with me and say she was just being honest and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have handled it that way because you didn't leave any parent feeling confident or, you know, really thrilled about you being their child's teacher. I would have said, this is my first time teaching grade four. This is what I've learned so far. This is the plan. I will have a schedule created by this date. I will post it in the Google Classroom. Like, give me a plan. Don't just sit there and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So as you ask the question, Mark, is it acceptable? It depends what type of person you have. If you have the Christine Sutherland who is going to get the material and be able, and, and good teachers can do this. A good teacher can read something and figure out how to relay that information and make other people understand it. So if you have that person, is it acceptable if they've gotten the material? Sure. If you have somebody who is telling you, I can't do this, odds are they're going to be like our kid's teacher and show up in front of a classroom like my instructor did and say, I don't know this material. Mm. That leaves nobody confident. Now we're all like, well, this class is a wash, so fuck it. Mm. You know what? I I hear the pain that you're describing. Um, thankfully, I haven't experienced it in a long time because what happens is sometimes you're caught without a teacher in a spot or a teacher Mm. pulls up ill or can't complete. Um, And that's the other reality. So someone has to step in. Yeah. So the teaching strategies that you are speaking about, um, who could really take over a class? Yeah, there's a lot of people that can, you know, pick it up and run with other people's material and do a, a, a good job at it. Because it's not just about delivering. It's not just about talking at them. It's usually about how do we apply this information? Exactly. And that's what's really important. So, yeah, we, we have been um, in a circumstance, a few circumstances where, yeah, sometimes someone gets sick or someone moves away or, and then we find the most appropriate replacement. And I've interviewed um, um, administrators from around the country with respect to education and there are some times they're in high need, like they have so few massage therapists that want to teach or can teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they do, and they do a good job over years, they develop their own resources. And then if they pick up and move, all the resources go with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas we kind of have requirements because we produce materials that are owned by the college so that there is a little bit of a safety net in the event that something like that happens. Um, so we don't have, well, I, I forgive me, the union and the contract associated with it has recently changed. And there's like our material was owned by the college. We wouldn't like, because we're not active producing research, for example, mm-hmm. just the teaching materials would be um, available to whomever in the, in the uh, programs. So that provides a safety net, but, um, that may have changed recently with respect to any publications. I, I I would have to go back to the contract about that. Are you permitted to to teach a class any way you want and use any resources that you want, provided you just it matches course syllabus and course outlines and things like that? Well, yeah, the creation of the course syllabus um, is important, and then we also have to produce a schedule. Uh, each of that gets approved. So for the most part, yeah, we're setting it up. But the course outline, the materials or objectives of the courses, that's set in advance. And that's one thing that takes a long time to change. So it it kind of gets set for about a year, right. but it always we always have time to redevelop or alter things. So it, it um we can't change it willy-nilly. But the manner in which you deliver the material, that's that is solely up to you? Um, the delivery, so whether it be through PowerPoint or mm-hmm. some readings, assigned readings, 
what becomes, yeah, that's up to us. Provided it uh, also matches how the students are assessed. Okay. Meaning, you know, whether it's tests like written tests or um, essays or presentations or, you know, whatever medium you want to use. So there's a little bit of flexibility. There's a, yeah, there's a little bit of flexibility. And every year it changes um, because, well, uh, each student group is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's, you know, the same co- program, same course, it's like going on a canoe trip. You might go and start at the same point, but different people in the boat, the winds are different. You know, sunshine is different. It's going to be a different journey. You are not so you our language. <laughs> we are not I'm outdoorsy like, people. Can you, We're can like, you, cool. Can you, tell, can you tell I'm not from Thunder Bay? <laughs> it's like going on a canoe trip. Mark and I both just looked at each other like, mm, nope, we know nothing about that. Okay. How about your subway trip? Uh, okay. You go on the subway. It's the same way every day, but every day the trip is different. It's a little different. All right. We're, we're with you, Marvin. Now, I want to go back. Um, you, you were talking about, you know, the syllabus being set and, you know, things things aren't going to change willy nilly. And that was one thing that you I don't think you used the words willy nilly or maybe you did. But in the email that I you did. sent to me, you you sort of alluded to the same thing because you listened to the episode where we talked with Anne, who uh, for anyone who didn't hear it, Anne was hired at a community college to supervise the student clinic. And what she didn't recognize was that there was this distinction between the clinic supervisor being support staff versus being an instructor. And so she was actually um, sort of reprimanded for teaching, I'm putting in air quotes, of teaching in the student clinic when that actually goes above her her job description. And so we we had a discussion with her that, you know, it, it turned out to be unfortunate for her and where she did end up leaving her job and, and she wanted to work in a school and she wanted to teach. And so Marvin had sent an email saying he's never had this experience, right. but he understands what happened with Anne, and he can offer a little more insight as to how these programs are set up and how change can actually happen. Because I think one thing he said to me is, Anne's concerns probably will be addressed. They just couldn't have been quick enough for her to keep the job and be happy where she was. So before we answer that, I kind of want to know who dropped the ball here in terms of Anne having a really good grasp on what her employment duties were. Was that Anne misinterpreting or was that, you know, the institution not making it clear, at least from what you've heard and can decipher from the bullshit that we talk about? Yeah, well, my impression is that the dynamic between whoever's controlling the program and um, like maybe Anne said something that was, you know, using words that were not necessarily supportive of another teacher or the dynamic between and other teachers and the manager. Mm-hmm. Because at some point in time, we're all there to support the students. The students have an experience. And you know what? If they're deficient in some way, shape, or form, well, certainly that has to be remediated. And that seemed to be what Anne's message was, yeah. which was really, really important. So I think she did all the right things that she could do. But whether or not she was supported in making those changes and recognizing, um, you know, maybe we need to do things a little bit differently here. Because, for example, if the supervisor in the clinic, because we have on-site supervisors too, um, if they're not allowed to make educational decisions in the moment by guiding a student or showing them something different, they're doing the student a disservice. Right. Because how else are you going to respond to their immediate needs if you can't teach them something? That was my confusion, Marvin. That was my confusion. So help me figure this out. Yeah. So supporting the student is at the center of it all. Now, what I'm going to say is um, Algonquin College is a large college. We have 20,000 students. Wow. It's huge. And so we have, you know, our whole dynamics between faculty and management and I'll call them executives or upper management. So, you know, it's unique to Algonquin. And whatever school Anne was at, whether it's a big school or a small school, probably has different dynamics. Mm-hmm. So whoever's the manager is probably exerting some influence. And whether or not they truly control the program or not is, you know, involved in that dynamic. So, but clearly, um, the terminology around the titles 
is set by the agreement, the collective agreement that I mentioned. And then how it's implemented or executed becomes a matter of the people, the people that are involved. So it's really unfortunate that her message wasn't heard. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'll be waiting to find out which college she's at because when I see the certification results, you know, and they show zero, it'll be like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> um, but my assumption is it's a smaller college and they're probably a little less flexible with where they were. Because mm-hmm. she also mentioned a little bit about that too. Yeah. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. The important thing is that students are supported and that um, like the canoe trip or the subway trip, you make adjustments along the way if if it's not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's always a, always the capacity to make a little adjustments, but then whether or not who's responsible for implementing the lessons, that is re- the responsibility of of faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, what we try to do, uh, because our, our our teachers who are part time, they only get paid for the hours they work. Right. So we try to set it up such that their hours are in fact contained to the teachable hours, meaning like whether they're supervising in clinic or whether they're um, teaching in the lab. Um, we try to make sure it's contained into the hours that they're paid so that they don't have outside work and no development. One thing I don't think I I realized when we were speaking with Anne, actually, and listening to you talk, I'm wondering, you know, you're, you're talking about the dynamics. Um, did she say, Mark, that the reason that she was spoken to, was it was it a student complaint? Yes. So my thought just in this moment when you said, you know, the dynamics between her and the instructor, although she said she had a great relationship with the instructors and we'll never know, none of us were there, but um, I'm wondering if, you know, she did say something very conflicting to what the instructor had said and then the students got upset and maybe went to the instructor and then, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, but because I, I feel like she said it was a student. So then I'm wondering then, if the whole thing maybe got blown out of proportion and she wasn't heard properly because maybe the instructor thought that she was, I don't know what the, what I trying to say here, but like telling the students something that was contrary to what they were saying. So, you know, maybe they were thinking, well, she's, she's making me look bad Mm. in front of my students. You know what I mean? I wish I remember. I should go back and listen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But now Marvin, you were saying that when it comes to the way the program is executed, it is reviewed. Is it annually? Like how how often is this reviewed? How are changes made? Like, you know, you're talking about these agreements. These are things that we didn't have to deal with working at a private school. So how does this work and how can changes actually happen in a scenario like where Anne was, where her her concerns probably could have been heard and addressed in a way that would be more supportive of students? Um so in the short term, there is a way for like there's usually a way for students to uh, if you would register a complaint and you know normally dynamics would be you speak to the person you have the issue with right right that way you can get it remedied uh if there's not if it's not addressed that way there's a little more formal because we have class representatives so you can bring it up to the class rep who might bring it to what's called a program council meeting so the program all the levels of the program all the students all the faculty they meet not all is in one um but representatives of the students' groups, representatives of the faculty. They meet and they talk about arising issues, things that need to be resolved and stuff like that. So there's that. And that happens usually twice a semester. Okay. Yeah. So that feeds back into input. Um, And then there's formal reviews every year um, of the the program, the curriculum. you work out and make those changes in a planned manner because our curriculum is approved every year for your, every course. For the most part, since we've been established for a while, those things don't change too much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also input from what's called the program advisory committee. So that's where the community stakeholders, um, faculty, um, student reps as well, they all come in and talk to and talk about the, the program, how it what it might be missing, uh, what's doing well, what's happening in the community to project and look for other opportunities. Mm-hmm. So there's those pieces. Uh, we also have what's called a program quality review. So the community college is responsible for reviewing its programs formally. And this happens every five years. 
And it's a big to-do where there's a big report generated. Um, and there's that mechanism. And that receives feedback from the graduates, from the current students, from faculty. Yeah, they just have workshops and work um, talkabouts with others. And they compile that information and give it as feedback to the faculty and whoever runs the program. Then now, of course, we have the voluntary accreditation right. um, through the CMTCA. And that's another avenue for feedback because that's a like an on-site, one-day intense kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's all of the background work, the homework to show in paper all the things that you do and all the connections. So there are opportunities to develop the curriculum that way. Has your program at Algonquin gone through that that uh, accreditation process? Yes, we have. We went and were approved. Um, we have a three-year approval. I think it was from last, starting last fall. So I'm listening to this, and it's also making me think about the ongoing discussion that's, I feel like, never-ending. It's very circular about massage therapy education, the quality of massage therapy education, whether or not it's outdated, whether or not the resources needs to to be upgraded, whether or not that RMTs that are getting their license are um, having to unlearn and relearn. Like, There's so many different I mean, I'm sure you've heard it, you've seen it, and you are smiling, so you have some idea what I'm talking about. Thoughts, Marvin? <laughs> before before you kick in the thoughts, just, just so people have an idea, this shit doesn't get changed overnight. Like, this stuff can't get, even if you wanted this to change, it doesn't change, it can't change fast. And I'll, I can speak to it a little bit from a private career college standpoint. So when you register your program and it's approved with the ministry, you can't just change that program without re-registering your program. You can make minor changes, at least for private career colleges, up to 10% of the program. I'm not quite sure what that means, whether it's 10% of the time or 10% of the content or whatever the case is. Whenever I suggested, hey, maybe we should do this, 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 you know, the, the the uppities where I was at, it was like, do whatever you want, because they gave me a lot of freedom. They said, do whatever you want, but just don't change more than 10% of the program, because then we got to re-register this, and it's a whole other process, and it's a whole other fee, and all the rest of it. So at least from a private career college standpoint, like it ain't easy. It's not like someone can just say, we're going to teach this different, and we're going to take this out of the out of the curriculum. Right. But you, sir, smiling. Yeah, I want to know, know your thoughts on massage therapy education as it is right now. Um, I don't think it's as uh, a bad um, circumstance as many people are making it out to be. There are certainly elements that can be improved, just with as in any institution, um, because massage therapy education is an institution, whether it be provide uh, private or, or um, public. So I'm I'm laughing so much because. Um, Part of my background when I first uh, came out as a massage therapist, I joined the OMTA, mm-hmm. which was the RMTO, RMTAO, former name. Um, and I got involved and I was really involved with um, the committees and I joined the executive. I eventually became president. I traveled. Uh, I represented Ontario to the Canadian Massage Therapist Alliance. And these same conversations were happening back then during um the uh, creation of the agreement on internal trade. Mm-hmm. So helping people to move from province to province. Right. Yep. So with all of that in mind, I recognize massage therapy education is very condensed and it's typically very rushed. Um, people have a lot of um, expectations and a lot of different interpretations of what needs to be taught. Mm-hmm. So, in the end, um, yeah, programs need to be improved. I think what it really comes down to is the experience of every student and making sure that they're having the experiences that they need to practice professionally because part of that involves how they think and how they're critical mm. of their thinking. and. How do you teach that? How do you evaluate that? When you have, and I'll use the example that you're giving me, a massage therapist who really knows massage well and can teach really well, but like when you're getting into the discipline of teaching those pieces that are not necessarily tangible, how do you measure that kind of stuff? Because that's the expectation that I hear a lot about because I've listened to uh, of course, many of your podcasts, as well as um, 
other people's podcasts about education. So part of part of what can be remedied is making sure that teaching and evaluation strategies are in line with what prospective, not prospective students, but entry to practice graduates need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, that's not really a, a, I'm very good at uh, not giving a complete and direct answer. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's a big topic, but I don't think it's as bad as people think it is. Now, here's the other piece. There needs to be more dialogue between what is experienced in the schools, private and public, and what the college is seeing in their certification exams, Mm. meaning what they're measuring and what is not aligning. Right. So I'll give you an example. In our program, we have, um, we think we do a great job when it comes to uh, the physical assessment elements of what we do. For the longest time, we've always been just below the provincial standard for what the college is measuring on their certification exams. Mm -hmm. But we've always been like one or two with respect to the overall provincial, um, if you would, the the way the schools are rated, Mm -hmm. their score. So it's like if we're not making the mark and we're consistently doing really well, but we're still not making the mark. What are we doing? Mm. Something's not matching. Right. And so what are these expected standards, meaning not standards of practice, but the evaluation standards? And I'm not asking to see anyone's exam. I'm just saying, if we are doing well as a program, we think we are, because our measurement is fairly high when it comes to the provincial average, but we're not making the mark set by the college, what is the mark? So... Um, that dialogue has to improve. And it's, again, not to find out exactly what needs to be done because the competencies are interpreted. Competencies are complex performances. So what do you make of these? What what does a massage therapist need to do? Well, I can tell you that critical thinking is embedded throughout that entire document. Critical thinking is part of what they need to do. Part of it is using evidence and practice. And what does that really mean to everyone? So those are the kinds of conversations that have to happen. And they're, you know, I'll say deep and meaningful conversations, but there's no easy answer because everyone has a slightly different interpretation. I agree. Do you think that the call it the regulatory body, do you think that they should be providing this types of information to the educational institutions? Like this is what our licensing exams about this beyond what they do in the, the candidate handbook. So the candidate handbook gives a really brief description of the stations and they don't give anything else beyond that. And it's left up to the school to really kind of interpret that and therefore create whatever OSCE preparation that they typically schools typically have around that. Do you think that the, the college should really just kind of give a little bit more information as to as to what the exam's about? Or or do you think they're just doing what they're, they're in line with what they're supposed to be doing? I think they're in line with what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, truly, it's a conversation, not a publication. It's a conversation. Yeah. Because um, in my journeys with uh, um, when accreditation was first getting rolling um, prior to this iteration, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember talking with the um, private vocational schools, the, their sort of board um, members of their private vocational school. Well, I forget the name of it. You remember the yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ontario Council of Private Career College or something, some nonsense like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they have to have the conversations about to clarify what different parts mean. Right. And community colleges have to do that. The college has to do it as well. They have their role. Like, I mean, I think the educators need to interpret those documents i don't think the college needs to produce those documents but that interpretation of what it really means that's a conversation that has to be had between the educators Mm -hmm. as well as those who are creating those exams Mm -hmm. because prometric is the organization now in charge of those exams it's a delegated thing from the college Mm -hmm. so if those people who are setting those exams are dialoguing and making sure the educators understand I think that would be a better fit rather than the CMTO itself mm. because educators have to speak with educators because they'll speak it in that teaching and learning uh, sort of evaluative kind of language. Mm. And it makes sense. 
That's my interpretation of it anyway. I agree with you that it's not as bad as, as uh, it's made oh, out to course. be. Um, I hate that. I hate that when some only hear uh, massage therapy curriculum is garbage. It's out of date. Blah blah. I'm like, the, really? So the regional anatomy is out of date. Right. So the pathology is out of date. The neurology is out of date. Like, what do you? What do you? That's half the fucking program. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, part of the issue again is the 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 um, sort of textbooks that that some institutions are using, right? Mm. Which appear on the if two or more schools use a textbook. Right. It will appear on the certification exam, or excuse me, on the college's list of approved, in their library approved uh, approved references. Oh, I did not yeah, know that. References. If two or more schools use it, they put it on. Like, I have no. I, I didn't know I that. I never knew, and I never really cared to find out how they decided what was on this approved list of references. I had no that idea. That is. That is but hot garbage. That. Oh my god! Let me garbage. tell you why that is hot garbage. There are so. Many freaking massage schools, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to speak negatively about any school in particular. But we know from doing OSCE prep, and anyone who's listened to us long enough has heard some of the horror stories we've heard of people coming out of certain colleges. And maybe accreditation is going to fix this problem. I don't know. But there's so many freaking schools. So what if two schools that are like not even that great decide to use this as a reference? Now it's an approved reference. That is hot garbage. It is a low number. I don't know if it's two, but I, I would suggest it is just because schools use them and they recommend them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That is interesting information that, thank you, Marvin. That's my one thing that I learned today. You know, you learn something new every day there. That's my one thing. I want to go back to your your talk about thinking and um, expectations. I know myself as a student and because probably because I'm an overthinker, but myself as a student when I was in massage school could never figure out how to piece everything together. Because like, like you said, you can't really teach somebody how to think, but I think there could have been maybe a little more emphasis when I was in school about how we should be thinking, if that makes sense. Like, I know you can't teach somebody how to think, but teaching somebody, I was about to say teaching somebody how to think. My words, I swear, they make sense in my brain. They are all jumbled up. But as you were, as you were saying that, I was thinking back to being a student and just mm-hmm. how I couldn't figure out how when I have a real live human coming in, mm-hmm. How I'm supposed to put together. This is what clinic is for. Exactly. And this is where the clinic is so important. And that's why I think I got so flustered and furious when I was listening to Anne's story, because this is your chance to have a real human in front of you and recognize that you're dealing with a person, not a textbook, and how to speak to that person, how to communicate effectively, how to get the information you want, the subjective information, how to figure out what type of assessment you're going to do, how to actually interpret those assessments, then how to create a treatment plan. Like All of the hows were really, really hard for me. Like I stressed so much when I was in school and I was so tired of hearing people say, and I know it's the truth, but I was so tired of hearing my instructors say, it all comes with experience. It comes with experience. It comes with experience. And for as a massage student, that was frustrating as hell. Do you think if you had a lengthy put together, this is nothing else you do but clinic, say like at the end of your massage therapy school career, the last six months is nothing but clinic. And do you have a supervisor? And yes. You're being assessed yes. and evaluated? Yes. yes, yes, Okay. Right? Do you think that would have done the trick for you? So instead of having this student clinic that you're doing all throughout your massage career and and you're implementing these things that you're learning along the way, do you think like this, this packed student clinic experience at the end of your massage therapy career would have done that for you? I think that that's one possibility that could have helped because what I found in student clinic, and again, different Different colleges might be different in the way that they run their clinics. So Marvin can speak to how Algonquin does it. But with us, for example, I would get like the same people almost all the time coming to see me in clinic. It would be like, it was right, like because, I was working. It was like the guy who enjoyed coming and getting well, a $20 a big, massage. A big part of that is because your clinic night is Tuesday and you're there to see three people on Tuesday right. versus you're in clinic for the next six months from Monday to Friday. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're seeing a whole bunch of people and right. it's just constant. So, so what it's, I'm it's, saying it's is, yes, work. the clinic didn't quite hit the mark for me, but maybe that was just my specific specific experience. Like maybe in other 
colleges, they do things a little bit differently, but that was the hardest thing for me. So when Marvin was talking about expectations, I remember saying to the instructors, but I don't understand how you figured that out. I don't understand how you're feeling that. I don't feel what you're feeling. And of course, every time the response to me was, it comes with experience. So Amanda, I have a question for you. How are you? How was your performance measured in clinic? How was my performance measured? So the clinic supervisor would pop in and she would sort of see what I was doing. She'd ask me some questions about the client, you know, what their primary complaint was, what the focus of the treatment was, what the goals of the treatment were that day, what assessments I did, like just the standard clinic questions. And then she might watch me a little bit. She might suggest certain things that I could do or she might say like, okay, I see you are, you know, doing some passive range of motion, what else could you incorporate that accomplishes this particular treatment goal? Like it, she, she was good in that way to, to get me thinking. And then, and then went through your clinic and then yes, once I did the documentation, then she would go through it. And she, you know, she like, I know Mark did this as well. She wanted to make sure that it really read like a book, you know, no matter what, where she looked, she could figure out what was going on, you know, what I was trying to do. And she could, I, she could, you could you what could she read would say, your, 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 your therapeutic thought process through your yes. documentation. Well, what she would say to me is I should be able to read this and really understand everything you did. Like I understand like what conversations you had, what assessments you did, what the treatment looked like and your clinical impression. And so that's what clinic looked like for me. Is that, is that what's clinic supposed to look like guys? That, that sounds great. <laughs> like, um, cause part of what I think about as well, in addition to what you're describing is, how did you perform in an interview when you were interviewing your patient? Did your did your supervisor listen in to your line of questioning or did they just kind of judge that from the documentation? I don't think anybody ever listened to me do a client interview. Now, I'm talking about 15 years ago. So if sure. my supervisor is listening and you did do that, I'm sorry. But I, do, <laughs> I don't recall her ever sitting in on my client interview, actually. And did they judge your treatment planning within your documentation itself? Yes. Or did they talk to you about it? Uh, okay. So Mark's saying yes, because he, he he worked at the same college I attended. But um, no, I that was something I didn't feel like I ever really, there was ever a lot of discussion around. Mm. Like, I don't feel like I ever actually knew. To me, it felt arbitrary. As a student, it felt very arbitrary how I was creating the treatment plan in terms of like frequency, duration, like those kinds of things. It just was like something I was pulling out of thin air. Mm. I don't feel like there was enough. Did you ever have enough. any other assignments in a lab or in a theory class related to those, to the interview or to the uh, treatment plan? Not so much that I recall. It was more so we would learn it and then we were, eval you know, we'd practice it in class and we were evaluated. And that's what I meant by putting the pieces together. Like I could do a client interview and I could regurgitate all of the questions I had to ask. And I, I, I mean... I, again, being an overthinker, I knew why I was asking these questions. I was pretty good at follow-up questions, but of course, in exams, we're not doing that, right? We just have to regurgitate the questions we're supposed to ask. But I don't remember ever having any like real discussion. And again, maybe I'm I'm not remembering things, but I always remember being confused on how to put together like the subjective interview and then the assessment and then the treatment plan and all of those things. It was maybe again, maybe it's just me overthinking, but it, it felt very disconnected at times. And one of the things that is uh, important when it comes to like teaching and learning strategies is that you give an opportunity to see what it's like to practice it in some way. Like maybe it's uh, an assignment in one of your labs or an assignment in a theory class and then to actually implement it in clinic. So I think those are some logical steps and maybe maybe you did or didn't have an obvious path with each of those. Mm -hmm. So, but um, schools do things, you know, they, they try to incorporate, I would assume they try to incorporate the steps, scaffolding the support to get you to that integrated approach. Yeah. Um, you know, one strategy that I use it and students have mixed reviews about it is I get to watch them do an interview. Uh, it's a fake interview, but they do it. And they record it, and then I get to watch it. Yeah, I learned that one from a, a law professor. I like that. He he would watch a disposition or whatever they do in law. Isn't that but what athletes that's do? That's an example. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Game, game tape. Yeah. I would, I would have certain certain times when I would let everyone know, like, hey, anyone here that's got an initial appointment, I'm going to come in and sit on your your initial interview. 
right? Yeah. Or, or today, guys, I'm gonna make sure that I'm there to see your 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 post treatment discussion and remedial exercise, whatever that might be, your home mm-hmm. care prescriptions. And like, so I would go through different weeks of things that I'm I'm definitely gonna go in and and check out at some point during yeah. this, along with just the normal clinic rounds, just to make sure everything's going smooth. But I I would purposely set out like I'm going to make sure that I'm looking at this and I would let everyone know like this is not a shock right I'm going to come in today when you're doing your intake at some point and then I'm going to sit in through this type of thing yeah but like I was saying even even in class like I I know this clinic discussion started because you said would it have helped me to have six months of intensive clinic it was just because what Marvin had said about expectations I feel like the student's expectations sometimes going into massage school. One, we've right. heard it here. They think it's going to be way easier than it is. They do, don't see right away the need to go into as much depth in terms of the sciences as we do. Okay. And and again, I know this is dependent on the instructor you have, but I think that you know, Marvin had mentioned discussion. I think just having more discussion and making sure that students understand like why we're doing this and the thinking processes that we need to have going through the whole program. And I don't know, maybe that would help somebody like me that just okay, felt so, like I was overthinking everything. <laughs> so so two things then. One, Marv, did you experience what Amanda just described when you were in school? Not or did all. you <laughs> not at all. No. Uh remember I went, uh I, I went to school a long time ago. Right. Graduated in 1994 mm-hmm. from CCMH. Right. And I had some great teachers. And um, this was in Sutton when it was uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. so sure, Lake Simcoe. Right, right. Um, I had some great teachers, but actually, you know what? The interaction in clinic, it's about whether you attended or not and the hours that you put in and sort of client customer satisfaction. But did you have this same feeling of like, I, I don't know how to put this all together? Did you have that same experience or was yours different? You felt really confident in your ability to do so? I felt confident. I, I Again, I had a degree in kinesiology. Okay, yeah. I had worked in rehab for a while. I've seen things in motion. I gotcha. had massage. So to me, it wasn't so bad. Um, you know, did I feel capable and competent with every massage? Not really. Right. But by the end, I did. So when did you grow out of that? When did I grow out of that? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Probably not until at least a year or two into actual practice when I started realizing that every time an instructor said to me, this comes with experience, that the more bodies I actually worked on, the more people I actually met, I was like, oh, okay, now I'm starting to put these things together. So are, are, are all of these cats that are... 10 years in, 15 years in, that are running around saying how school is crap. Are they forgetting the idea? Sam said this best at the Canadian Massage Conference when he did his talk, Mm -hmm. that the purpose of massage school is probably to produce a really good novice. Are we forgetting that, or is that is that a, is that a miss? Is it not to produce a really good novice? Because you, I mean, in my mind, when he said that, I was like, "That's fucking bang on." But that, I that, wish that I is said it like that, that is true. And I mean, we you've said it in in different language because we always say oh, like he this said is it's so good. But this is why this is why it's a practice, right? Like once you go out into practice, when you pass your licensing exams, you are showing your ability to be safe and somewhat effective. You don't know everything. You can't, you know, continuing education exists for a reason. I know I heard someone say recently, like, we shouldn't be relying on continuing education. Nobody's relying on continuing education. You have the foundational knowledge that you got in massage school, and then you get out into practice, and you will be able to identify areas where, "Mm, okay, I'm not so strong here. Maybe I need to get a little more experience in this. Maybe I need to take a course in that. But the point is really to produce therapists that are safe and somewhat effective that have enough knowledge, at least to be able to figure out if they have the knowledge to treat this client or if maybe they need to refer or if they need to learn a little bit more themselves. I don't don't see anything. Actually, that is a perfect definition. I think Sam did great. What do you think, Marvin? I think that's bang on. I didn't hear what Sam said, but I hear you. It's about a novice. It's an entry to practice, recognizing the trajectory of their practices to grow. And mm-hmm. like the responsibility of the schools, and I'm not trying to lessen the responsibility, but at minimum, there are some things that only need to be learned theoretically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They're actually listed in the competencies as such. There's some things that only need to be learned in a lab. And there are 
fewer things that need to be learned and evaluated in the clinic. So that's things that have to be. But part of that, Amanda and Mark, is that they do need to be able to do an interview and treatment plan, which are two elements that are harder to get in the moment. And Mark, it sounds like you, you know, did a great job with respect to paying attention, giving feedback in a very conscientious way. So um, from all of the podcasts that I've heard from, from you or of you, you know, your students loved you and that was great. So that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of connection that builds a bond. It's kind of like when, you know, your, your, your patient loves you. It's like you build that bond and you really connect and it really happens. What do you guys think of, what's your opinion on the massage therapist who stays at the entry to practice level throughout the career? I don't think it's possible to stay at the, I mean, I know what you're saying. The therapist who maybe doesn't decide to learn anymore, comes out of school and, you know, gets a job and stays there forever kind of thing. Is that what we're looking yeah, at? Yeah, something like that. Even that person is learning and growing and changing up what they're doing based on the clients that they're seeing. So just by nature of them being in the field and doing the work, you're saying that, that there's going to be a natural growth. There. there will be a natural. I mean, it, it may not be as much growth as they could potentially have. I mean, it, of course, it wouldn't be. I still think there's definitely a need to assess your. I mean, the college now makes us assess ourselves if we're in Ontario. So you don't have a choice but to actually look at yourself and figure out what areas of your practice are lacking. But I think that there's going to be some natural, because like I said, the two years that I was working, I got one job and I was there for five years. And within those first two years, I think I changed drastically as a therapist. So you asked me, when did I grow out of that? So one of the things was I, um, you know, when Marv was saying he didn't have that issue that I had of not being able to piece things together because he had a degree in kinesiology and experience in rehab. I had a degree in kinesiology. I didn't have any experience in rehab. I worked as a personal trainer, but I had the kin degree. I had it, but what I didn't have was the confidence. Yes, you mentioned that very well because that's the other thing. I don't. I wasn't cocky, but I was like, you know, I was confident as a person in my yeah. capacity to put things together. And I, I was, I was not confident. And it took those couple of years of working in this place, no matter how many of my clients said, wow, you're the first therapist that was able to help me with this issue or wow, I've never had somebody do that type of thing and treat like no matter how many compliments like that I got, I still doubted myself, still felt like I didn't know enough. I'd be going back to my notes. That's the other thing, by the way, for everyone who says like school was garbage, but no way. I had my... um my accordion folder with all of my notes that I used to study for my OSCE in my file cabinet in my clinic so that I could refer to things when I needed to. And I was looking back at stuff all the time. But after two years in practice and really figure, like really being able to see the results of treatment plans that I had gone through with patients and seeing what had happened and the outcomes, I was like, oh, I am actually making a really big difference. Oh, these things are actually working. Oh, I actually do know more than I thought I did. And I eventually got confident enough that when people would come to me and it was something that I didn't necessarily know, because this was another thing, and it's probably an Amanda problem because I am an overthinker and I expect way too much of myself. But because we learned so many things so in depth in my brain, I had to, I'd have the answer to everything, right? I I had to be able to tell every single client that came in with a concern, yes, I, I understand. I know what you're talking about. And this is what I know. Versus now when somebody comes in and they say, oh, I was just diagnosed with X. I am perfectly comfortable now saying, don't know a lot about that. Talk to me. What did your doctor say? What Like now I will say that. 12 years ago, I would have been like, oh, okay, like nodding along, like, okay, I know what's going on because I wasn't confident. Yeah, getting away from teachers thinking that there's only black and white thinking. And that's, that's, I'm hoping, and those more experienced teachers have the capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. I say more experienced only because they feel more comfortable in the position. There's certainly some early um, teachers who can do that too. Provided they have some of the strategies and supports and feels that they can actually do that because someone like Anne may not have felt that they're able to actually communicate different information. Yeah. What do you get out of being an educator? Um, It helps me stay current because my students are always keeping me uh, up to date and or challenging me in certain ways. Um, So that's really nice. I do like to teach and I like to be social and that helps a lot. And I like uh, 
contributing to, I'll say, the future growth of the profession. Because I've always been part of the profession, um, you know, on the professional association and participating. Mm-hmm. And this is my way of helping out. And you know what? It's a steady gig. I got, um, you know, I'm, I'm living here. I'm comfortable. And I haven't looked back, really. What do you think of all the all those cats that are quick to complain but never want to get involved? Well, I encourage them to get involved. Because if you want to make a difference, you know, in politics, in anything, you you gotta you gotta contribute. The social contribution is part of what we are. That's what we have to do. That's why I appreciate this podcast so much. Oh, thank you. Well. <laughs> I appreciate people like you. Like I said, when people <laughs> just so listeners know, if you've ever emailed me and you know, sometimes it may take me like ten days or you know, three weeks to get back to you, mm-hmm. but I, I read every single message and email that comes in. Mark reads them as well. And I appreciate somebody like you, Marvin, who took the time to write out a well thought out email about, you know, the way things actually and just to educate us a little bit more, because that's the purpose of the podcast. We don't know everything. Know we love <laughs> I, Mark loves to say he knows nothing, but we love to meet therapists in in different parts of the profession who can teach us something that we don't know. There's so many different avenues you can take. And that's one thing that, you know, when we go visit schools, because we're now part of the um, organizing team of the Canadian Massage Conference. So we go into schools to try to get the students involved in coming to the conference. We still offer free students day. And when we go into the schools, one thing we tell them is like, whatever you think massage therapy is right now, it's just so much more. Like there's so many things you can do. You know, you can be an educator, you can get involved with the association, you can get involved with the college, you can, you know, teach continuing education. You can have a podcast where you talk a bunch of crap with a bunch of cool people and it's great. <laughs> Here I am on a, let's say Thursday, Thursday night, sitting on a couch with my shoes off, just having a conversation. <laughs> this is my job. <laughs> So what's uh what's the what's the retirement plan look like for you? Are you are uh, are you uh, are you going to end your days at uh at an educational institution or something? Oh, else? I would imagine yes, yeah? yes. Um, I'll just say yes. Look how comfortable he looks. <laughs> well, you know, you get so far into something and it, you enjoy it, and it's like, well, why not? Um, you know, I'm I'm paid well. I I have supportive environment where I where I work, and. It's it's great. The students, um, although the the uh, the students change every semester and every year, like there's this ebb and flow of the students, but they are still, you know, the the proverbial massage therapist comes in with an open heart and you know a willingness to uh, participate, and it's really it's um, pretty good. It's a nice place to be. Yeah, and you've 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 done a whole bunch of things in the profession too, so it's like you've already filled that cup a little bit. There's you're you're good to sit back. I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you practice and at I all still, encourage. Marvin? I do not. No, Although, no. Um, now, because of the way the school is structured, I'm able to accumulate my hours ac- appropriately, mm-hmm. meet those requirements. But uh, it was funny because this year I was like, you know what? I want to get back into the practice thing oh. because my kids are getting older, and I can I have a little bit of free space. But they just need their driver's licenses to give yeah. me a little more space. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I'm inactive. I've been inactive for this. This is my second year. I'll probably go inactive next year. And everyone was, you know, anytime I tell someone like that, like, why don't you just let it go? I'm like, you know what? This is actually going to be the retirement plan. My plan is to once I'm done with all this other bulk shit that I'm doing, is to is to reactivate my license and and be the old guy that that treats people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to be. I want to be like the seventy year old, the seventy. 25 year old massage therapist so well we know a therapist that retired at what 80 like she yep. she practiced until she was Some 80 like i yeah. think yeah. which yeah. is pretty cool i knew somebody when i was first in practice uh she had to be like late 70s she was approaching 80 and uh, she was just selling off her practice and i was like brand new getting in and i was like wow i always heard that like massage therapists couldn't last more than 10 years she's like nonsense nonsense i've been doing this for i, th- I can't remember what she said it was like 37 years or something i'm like good for you i man. love it when i hear cats that 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 find that place that they really love to be at and they just park themselves there and like i love this this is my gig like like uh, we got a buddy ed Ed, he's been on the podcast before. 
He's had one job as a massage therapist. He's worked at U of T since he got his license. When did Ed graduate? Was he like 94 as well or was he even I don't earlier? know if he was that. I, I, he might have been around that time. Yeah. Ed Ratz? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been he's been around a lot longer than me. There we go. Yeah. And he's had the same job. He's been job. at U of T his, his whole bloody career, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he does all the Canadian Sport Massage Therapy Association stuff, but nonetheless, he's he's... And he's really, he's like, I'm, just, I'm I'm here, man. That's it. He's a good man. Yeah, he's, he's a good dude. Anything else that we got to ask Marv? How tall are you? Sorry, man? by the way, I, I'm sorry if- <laughs> You look if, tall sitting there. How tall I'm are you? 183 centimeters. Oh, man, come six on. Foot, me... Six foot one. Six foot one. He looks He looks. He like does look one. tall sitting there. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm sorry if you notice that every once in a while we call you Marv, because, and I know it's Marvin. It doesn't matter. But nope. it's as soon as I'm we I'm wearing got... my Marvin the Martian shirt today. Are so you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I One of my favorite movies of all time one of my guilty pleasures is uh home alone and you know the character marv he's like he's one of my favorite characters so when you first emailed me i'm like sweet it's marv <laughs> you look nothing like marv <laughs> okay that's good so i remember the movie yeah exactly yeah. don't worry you look nothing like <laughs> anything else we gotta ask you no i found we... out how tall he is found out what we got for lunch i think <laughs> i think we did some good work here today guys day. appreciate this thank you very much for talking yes and, thanks um, for being here every uh opportunity to talk and share is, is a good one thanks right on you guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone peace <laughs>